Lamentation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Yeah. Someone gave me a, a pointer. Actually, that week, two weeks, or three weeks ago, two people gave me a pointer. So I have one in my office and one here. I needed a pointer. The Church of Ephesus. The Lost Love Church. By the way, it wasn't the loveless church. Some people say that's the loveless church. They had love, just that he says that you lost your first love. You left your first love. So that's what I mean by lost love church. They lost some of the love that they had for the Lord. Now again, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 to 7. Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labors, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles, and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to... Eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. By the way, today there will be, we're going to spend two weeks on this first passage. The reason is, is because I need to set up the entire chapter, uh, chapters two and three, and that's going to take some time itself. So we're only going to uh, see Ephesus just in the last part of the message. So this is really just part one. Now again, if you go to back to uh, chapter 1, verse 19, you'll remember that this is the outline of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 19, it says, write the things, and again, write, and that's what, we're, we're, that's what we're reading about right now, is what he wrote, right? Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Seen, are, take place. Uh, those things that we're seeing is actually chapter 1. It's the vision of Christ, past, because he always has been. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Chapter 2 and 3 is actually that second part of verse 19 where it says, and the things which are, that's present. That's, that's the church age, actually. And so he's going to be writing to seven churches. By the way, there are seven representative churches, and we're going to keep going through this. Seven different churches, seven churches that represent different characteristics of, of the churches that will represent throughout all of church history until Christ comes back at the rapture. By the way, church history, uh, uh, ch the church age, I believe, started at the day of Pentecost. So again, chapters 2 and 3 is present, the things that are, and then in chapter 4 begins the last part of verse 19 when it says, and the things which will take place after this, that's prophetic. So you have chapter 1, past, that's vision of Christ, chapters 2 and 3, present, church age, chapters 4 through 22, that's future. And that just breaks it down. Uh, again, I believe that, that that's why John, or yeah, John wrote this, is give you the whole outline, right? Many of you went to college. It was always great when you had your syllabus, right? You could kind of follow the whole pattern, right? You know, you get your syllabus. By the way, syllabus did two things. First of all, it gave you the big picture, and then it got you depressed, right? Because you're like, how can I accomplish all of this? It's amazing how you did, right? But uh, that's, he just gave an overview, an outline in verse 19. You've got to kind of hold on to that. Now again, he's, we're, chapters 2 and 3 uh, tells us what Christ thinks of his church. I want you to get this. Chapters 2 and 3 is what Christ thinks of, of local churches. He's writing to seven local churches. Now again, if you turn to Acts 20, verse 28, we realize that Christ loves the church, right? 
Let me read verse 28 of Acts 20. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. This is Paul actually talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus back in the 50 ADs. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's Paul talking to the elders, to shepherd the church of God, which he, that's Christ, purchased with his own blood. Christ sacrificed himself for the church. We are forgiven because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. That's, what it, that's why each of us who have been saved, if you, if you want forgiveness, you need to receive what Christ has done in your place, and that is he sacrificed himself for your sin on the cross. In fact, recently, I, you know, we, we sin, I sin, but there was a particular sin this last week. I was just thinking about that, that I sin in a particular way, and that caused Christ's suffering on the cross to be that much greater. Sometimes we think that our sin just was like generically, and he would have suffered equal to, no, no. Each sin had to be taken care of on the cross. Our sin, and and the, the greater the sin, the greater the suffering. And he died in my place, he died in your place for each and every sin. Again, because he was the son of God, his, uh, the value of his death was infinite and therefore could forgive all sin for all believers who would ever believe in him. And the question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? He is a wonderful Savior, isn't he? There is nothing like walking with Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? There is nothing like walking with Christ. Doesn't it frustrate you when you don't walk with Christ? That's why Paul talks often about a clean conscience, a good conscience. There is nothing like a clean conscience. I.e., you're saved, walking with Jesus in the light that he is, you know, the path of righteousness, and you know that you're walking with your Savior. There's nothing like that. I say that because what we're going to find out is there are some churches that weren't walking in that light. And my fear is that many Christians, even here today, are not necessarily, are not walking in the light of Christ. You've allowed your consciences to get dirtied and you rationalize, well, this is just the, you know, the age that we live in type of scenario. But Christ loved the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. In fact, Matthew 16, verse 18, and again, we're just, just again, trying to set the stage. We've got to remember who Christ is. You know, we, again, we do understand he is the Lord. He is the Son of, Son of Man, Son of God. But in in chapter 16 of Matthew, Peter responds that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and in verse 18, the, the Lord responds to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But again, the rock he's referring to is not Peter, it's himself. And therefore, Christ himself is the owner of the church. Christ is the builder of the church. He is the protector of the church. He is the master of the church. He is the Lord of the church. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that the Lord is the master? Then as we go to these seven churches, it's the master speaking through John. Um, One of the things as I was studying for these seven churches is how actually many, how many times... Preachers don't preach much about the seven churches of the Revelation. Now think about how odd that is. The master of the church is addressing seven specific churches that are characteristic of all the age of the church age, and yet many pastors never even speak about it. Although, if you think about myself, I've only preached on this twice. About 15 years ago, I preached a series on the seven churches, and today we are. So, again, we need need to hear what the master says. He's the master of the church. He's the one that bought it with his own blood. The other person, the other personality here is, again, John. And we saw that in verse 4 of chapter 1. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Again, specifically, this entire book of Revelation was being sent to these seven churches. First of all, to show the vision, chapter 1. To give a, uh, an evaluation of the church itself, chapters 2 and 3. And then these seven churches would also find out what's going to be happening in the future, chapters 4 through 22. But what about John? What's his connection to this church? To the church at Ephesus? To all, let's say all seven churches. Again, church tradition says that John ministered at Ephesus in his latter years. 
Not surprising to see these letters addressed to Ephesus and the six surrounding churches, which all, by the way, were about 100 miles in circumference. In other words, we're not that far apart. Let's see here, 100 miles. That's like between here and Binghamton, a little bit less. All right? So again, these churches were pretty close in proximity with each other. John apparently had had a lot of uh, influence on these churches, especially the church at Ephesus. Tradition says that he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus for probably a couple decades. So when he's writing to Ephesus, he actually has people in their mind. It's like if I write, it's like if I left and after a couple years or a year, I wrote back to you guys. I'd be thinking about, you know, Lee and Donna and Bob and Barb and Bob and Louise, and you know, as I'm as I'm writing, right. But again, these were, these were people that were very close to him. He had pastored, he had shepherded them. Now John's, again, on the island of Patmos, which is only a few uh, 30-some miles away, out in the GNC. He's, he's in his 90s, okay? I mean, he has walked with Jesus for a long, long time. And now the Lord has obviously given him the vision, given him the information. He is writing, and again, I just want you to... To know that uh, this is, these are churches that were not disconnected from John's life. He had ministered in these churches, especially the church at Ephesus. Now, third question, or third point. What do the churches represent? And again, this is real important. And I'm going to put in three points. The first is there's a practical meaning to this. Again, as stated in Revelation 1.1, Christ sent a message to each of the seven local churches in Asia Minor at that time. Look at verse 7. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is chapter 1, verse 11. Excuse me. Chapter 1, verse 11. Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, that's John, and send it to the seven churches, and then he names them. Directly from the Lord to John to the churches. A messenger would naturally travel the route or this highway system that I'm going to show you in a moment, which is really a postal route. Do you have that, babe? So, by the way, whenever I use the word babe in this, that means my wife. That's who I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> Just, oh, that's not really clear. But this is. <laughs> um, okay, I just wanted to show you this. This is the Mediterranean and this is Israel. Okay, just to get you the perspective. Now, if I could have the second slide. Ooh, that's somewhat clear. Oh, wait, could you go back one? <laughs> what we're talking about is right here. Okay, so this is Israel, and we're talking about the seven churches are right here. Corinth is here, Greece, you know. But this is the seven. This is, um, and now if you go to the second one. Okay, so where is it at? I don't want to, Patmos is right here just a few miles offshore from Ephesus, and this Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira, the rest of the seven. And basically what you had is, uh, by the way, ships would come in. Uh, Ephesus at that time, it is no longer today, but at that time was uh, the main, one of the main ports. Since then, it's silted in, and it's like six miles inshore. So if you go to Ephesus now, there would be no, no water. But the point is the ships would come in. That was a main port. And then there was a route, a highway route, but not only that, it was a postal route. Actually, there were seven main cities, and it happens to be these are the seven main cities on the postal route. So again, uh, a letter could travel very quickly, very efficiently, because again, it started Ephesus, and then they would go right up through, you know, right on, and then down through, and those would be the seven churches of Asia Minor. So again, it's a postal route. It's a main, on a main highway. Was there a third? Uh, oh, that was just another. So anyways, that's the same thing. Seven churches of Asia Minor. And, and by the way, if you have a good, uh, uh, if you have a good MacArthur Study Bible, no, if you have a good study Bible, you'd, you'd be able to see that in the back. Uh, it always has maps as far as where the seven churches are. Again, each of the churches had existed for about 40 years. That's important. Back in about 55 A.D., um, it was begun through uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla and Paul, and that was Ephesus, and these other churches uh, also were uh, born out of Ephesus. In other words, that was like the mother church, the hub church. 
And so these, each of these churches has been around for about 40 years, starting in 55 A.D., and now this is 95 A.D., so 55, 95, about 40 years. Which means this. These are second and third generation Christians. That's huge. That is huge. Because the fire and the passion of the first generation Christian apparently wasn't getting passed down to the second and third. Now, I want to say something. How are we doing with that today? How is Alfred Allman passing the passion of the first generation Christian down to the second and third generation Christians? By the way, how many of you are first generation? First generation being this. You were the first one saved in your family. Now, your parents may have gotten saved after you were saved, but you were the first one saved. You were first. How many of you are first? Yeah, quite a few. How many of you are second? Second being your parents or third. I know my wife is third or fourth generation. By the way, is it good to be a third or second, third, and fourth generation Christian? Is that bad? No, 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 it's not bad. But this is what sometimes happens. This is what sometimes happens. The sacrifices that the first generation Christian had to make, because let's face it, they got saved and all of a sudden you're an oddball. And maybe your mom and dad even said that, you're an oddball. You know, you're too fanatical. Can you just type it down? No problem with religion, but let's not get too crazy. They had to make sacrifices. They had to make a stand. They had to actually draw the line in the sand. And every time that trial came, you became more galvanized that you were following Jesus Christ, right? You're following Christ. He's my Lord. He's my master. Mom, I can't do anything but do this. You ever feel like that? Right? What happens with second, third generation Christian, though? Second generation. They may get the teaching, but, but they haven't made the sacrifice. Sometimes they don't make the sacrifice. See, for them, they are, that's all they ever knew. I grew up in a Christian home. Praise God. I'm not saying that's not good. Praise God. But do you see how you have to step out and you have to make a stand? What did Jesus say? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, right? You've got to deny yourself. That's for a second generation Christian as well. You gotta take up your cross. That means you gotta be willing to suffer for Christ, even as a second generation, third generation, fourth. Sometimes we lose that. In fact, I find myself as a parent wanting to make my children's life easy. Things that I had to make a stand for, I try to eliminate out of their life. Is that, I mean, well, what do you want to make it hard? Well, there's something to be said for trials. In fact, Charlie is talking about trials down in ABF. He talked about it today, Job. There was something that Job learned through the trial. Something that we learned through Job through the trial. But here, this is second, third generation Christian. Now, by the way, there'd still be some first generation in the church. But that you need to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. These are, again, seven real churches that existed at the same time. Why just seven? Well, seven is the number of completeness in Scripture. You could ask this, why these churches? I mean, why the church at Ephesus? There's only two churches that are mentioned of these seven. Again, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Only two of them are referred to in other parts of the scripture. Ephesus, obviously, that's Acts 18, 19. You have a book to the Ephesians. Uh, Laodicea is the other one. It's over in Colossians. I mean, why does he, why does he pick out just these seven Churches. Why didn't he mention the church at Thessalonica? Why didn't he mention the church at Berea or Philippi? Well, again, I believe it's because these represent, most represent what Jesus wanted to address to the whole. In other words, as, as these seven are being presented for the next few weeks, you're going to start saying, oh, I can see characteristics of me. I can see characteristics in other churches, in these churches. They, these seven, though they are written to seven specific churches of the present, that present moment, uh, again, they also represent churches of, uh, throughout the church age. So as one writes, evidently the seven messengers to the uh, churches, um, oh, let me just say it this way. How did the messages, oh, I lost it. Uh, how did they get from point A to point B? In other words, how did they get to Ephesus here and then Smyrna, Pergamos? This is how uh, one man uh, understood it to be done. Evidently, the seven messengers, again, remember, there's, 
He's addressing angel to the angel of the church. They are referred to as stars that are being held in Christ's hands. How, do they, how, did, these, uh, how did the book of Revelation get around? Uh, apparently, these seven messengers to the churches carried a copy of Revelation with them. As they reached each destination, the messenger who was part of that church would stay behind and the other would travel on to the next location. This was done until a copy of, Re- of the book of Revelation had been delivered to each of the churches. As um, the commentator Thomas writes, quote, A messenger from each city would present the scroll to his own church, who would read and probably make a copy of it before the remaining messengers moved on with the original to the next city. So that's probably how it got passed on. You know? Oh. See, I never know what she's doing behind me. She could have like little cartoons and I wouldn't know. In fact, there's some weeks I say, well, how did it go? She said, it never even worked. I thought it was working. But the point is, is you know, once it got written uh, in Patmos, then it was Ephesus, and then it was being passed on, and it would, a copy would be written, left at Ephesus. The original went on, copied, left. I mean, then and the original went to Pergamos, and so forth and so, so on. Can you imagine carrying the book of the Revelation? <laughs> you know, and, and talk about the encouragement. I mean, let's face it, they're under persecution. They're considered dregs of the society. You know, they, all this slander has been against them. And now the king, the one who says, I hold you. I am protecting you and I see what's going on. Let me, let me give you an evaluation of your church and let me tell you what the rest of the age is going to hold. Talk about encouraging. So the first is a practical meaning for those seven local churches. But again, the second part is a perennial meaning. In other words, the seven churches represent seven different kinds of churches that have always existed during any period of church history, including today. So the seven letters were written to all churches at all times in all places. Very, very important. We can, we can get much out of these seven letters. And it is regrettable that the messages, these messages of encouragement, rebuke, and warning, are not more carefully studied by modern-day Christians. Many times they just pass over it. Now again, what are the seven churches? Let me just give you an overview. Ephesus, again, is going to be the lost love church. They lost their love. Lost their first love. Let's say it that way. Smyrna is the suffering church. Now again, Smyrna, you find that in chapter 2, verse 8. Smyrna... Is, um, is the suffering church. Look at verse 9. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. But you, I know your poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not. I mean, that, they're the suffering church. And then Pergama, Pergamos, verse 12. This is the church that is compromising. Look at this. Look at verse 14. Uh, because you have there in the church those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And look at verse 15. And thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans. I mean, they're in their church. (laughs) They're the compromising church. They're not willing to deal with sin. And then you have the corrupt church, verse 18. That's Thyatira. They're, They're tolerant and permissive. Tolerant. Look at uh, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants. In the church. Some woman running around immoral, ungodly, and they're not doing anything about it. No, don't want to hurt their feelings. Don't want to hurt her feelings. Don't want to offend. Then we have a dead church. That's Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. This is... He just basically says, and you're dead, verse 1. But you are dead. Thankfully, just a few are still alive, but you are dead. By the way, this is what you also have to know. The, when, he, when I say that they are dead, it doesn't mean that every one of them. It means that as a characteristic of that church, they were dead. Or the other one, as a characteristic of the church. The characteristic was that they were uh, compromising. Even in our church, we could characterize through this our church, but it doesn't mean that every individual right down to every person is that. But as a character, uh, general characterization, that's what it is. And then you have the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. That's starting in chapter 3, verse 7. 
They had an open door and, and no one can shut it. Apparently they were an evangelizing church, a witnessing church, and then the church at Laodicea, they were lukewarm, useless, self-sufficient. He just said, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Very, very insightful. Again, coming from the master himself. Now, third, so it's for the churches of the seven churches right there. You can also use it throughout church history, but the third is this. It is not prophetic meaning. It is not for prophetic now, what I mean by that is, and even when I went to practical Bible training school, I was told that these represented seven periods of church history, and this is how it went. Do you have that uh, other, it's like a chart? Yeah. Yeah. You might even see this periodically, and they would say this, the church at Ephesus is the desirable, and it, it, it was, it's the, the period is from 33 AD to 100. And then Smyrna, when a lot of persecution happened, up to 100 to 300 AD, or what is that, 313, till Constantine. And then they would just keep going on and saying, basically the seven churches are literally church history. And then you get down and we're now in the Laodicea uh, period of time. You know, they think they're rich, but they're really poor. That is not. Don't look at these as seven periods of church history. Try to tell the church in China who is suffering that they are the Laodicea church and not the Smyrna church, right? I mean, it might work for American Western Christianity, but it does not play out like that. So just mark that one out. If you ever thought of that, it's not the right way of thinking it. Again, all seven kinds of churches have existed in each period of church history. That's the point. And we don't want to neglect this. It, is, it can be very instructive for us to study it this way. In other words, we come to here, not as a history, a period of history, but we say, Lord, speak to me right now because this is speaking to me. That's what it was written for. Well, let's go to chapter 2 again. Let's get back to the church at Ephesus. Okay, we're going to, let's break this apart for a few moments. Like I said, this is just part 1. The church at Ephesus, and, and you're going to see, uh, I put them in C's, because actually most commentators, uh, commentaries put them in different types of C's, but I'll, I'll just come up with my own outline. But what you're going to find is this. You're going to find, first of all, the church that is addressed, or the commission. Then you're going to see the city, in other words, what, I'll give you a little bit of insight on the city. Then the character, the character, what I mean by that is the Christ. Christ is, in each of these uh, and with each of these uh, churches, Christ is, is shown, is pictured in some way. That's the third. Then the commendation, except for Laodicea, they, uh, they didn't have any positives. Okay, there was a church that had no positives. Okay, and then the concern. By the way, some would say the condemnation. I don't like that because Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation in Christ. But there is a concern that Jesus has with five of the seven churches, a major concern. And then you find the correction. In other words, this is the direction that you need to go and the challenge. Okay. By the way, the challenge is become an overcomer. An overcomer. You're going to see that word overcomer. You're going to see the same pattern. You're going to see the same outline for each of these seven churches. Okay. By the time you get to Laodicea in church, you're going to say, oh, I already know what's coming. Well, no, different pieces for different churches, but he, same type of outline. Same type of outline. Let me say this, the word of overcomer, and we'll see this next week, is talking about the general Christian. We are not talking super Christian here. We are talking, if you're not an overcomer, you're damned. Just think of it that way. If, overcomers are Christians. Not perfect, but we're overcomers. And that's why at the end of each letter, like in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. That's that's a Christian there. Christians are overcomers, and we'll develop that theme a little bit more in the next weeks. So again, the church at Ephesus. First of all, we see the commission. The commission, the church. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. To. See, that's a commission. To the angel. Now, who's this angel? Did you know that in the book of Revelation that uh, we, we learn more about angels than in any other book of the, of the Bible. You're going to see angels all over the book of Revelation. But, big but, but this is not referring to an angel. Actually, the word agalos, 
literally means messenger. One who is sent. That's, all right, so you could say it this way. To the one who is sent of the church of Ephesus. To the messenger. To the one who is sent. Although this word can mean angel and does throughout much of the book of Revelation, it cannot refer to angels here because angels are never involved in the leadership of the church. See, this is specifically referring to this angel of the church, and we never find angels in leadership over the church. So it can't be an angel. Not only that, but angels do not sin and therefore have no need of repentance, and yet throughout this book, especially the first four uh, churches, (coughs) the angel is also encouraged to repent. Well, angels don't repent. Uh, You remember in Revelation 12, uh, there was a certain amount of the angelic hosts that rebelled. They were damned, thrown out of heaven, and it's done deal. From this point on, you have the ungodly, the wicked angels, and you have the godly. And angels don't sin, and the ones that are godly, and they don't repent. So, saying all that, I'm saying this, that this messenger is a person. Okay? Most likely these messengers are the seven key elders representing each of the churches. In fact, I can back it up even more because when you go to the word, like in verse uh, 1, uh, let's see here, uh, where you see the word you, these things says uh, he, oh, da, 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 da. no, not, let's see here. Uh, second part of verse 2. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles. The you is always in the singular. It's not in the plural. It's in the singular. He's talking about, and I think this, I think he's talking directly to that particular pastor. Now you say, but there's supposed to be a plurality. I, I do believe that the scripture is very clear that there is a plurality of elders. But what, what here, I believe what he's doing is, Jesus is addressing through John specifically the teaching elder. By the way, as I was studying this, this just became really heavy in my soul. Really heavy. He is picking on and he's saying, you, I am I'm judging the church, but I'm also judging you. How, have you. how have you taught? How have you led? See, I like to have this type of scenario. Well, you just give them the truth and if they don't follow it, so be it. It's their problem. That's not how the Lord looks at it. So as uh, Richard Mayhew says, Jesus holds the God-appointed leadership responsible for communicating and correcting deficiencies in his church, end quote. I believe he's referring to the leader among leaders, the first among equals. And you say, well, you mean there is a first among equals? By the way, none of this is pride, okay? If you're looking down that path, you're going down the wrong path. What this is saying is, God, I believe, holds the teaching elder even more responsible than the rest of the elders. And, and I, would, I would use 1 Timothy 5.17. It says this, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, work hard at, in the word and doctrine. So apparently... Jesus is, through John, speaking specifically to the teaching elder. By the way, look, look at how he, uh, look at verse 16. He, this is Christ. He had in his right hand seven stars. Now go up to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. The angel. Do you see what I'm saying? He's, he's holding, he's saying, listen, I'm holding that teaching elder in my hand. By the way, holding doesn't bring up the idea of comfort or protection. It has to do with authority. It has to do with authority. Not my authority, his. <laughs> his authority over me. His authority, by the way, transferred over all of us. So, This is the commission to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Let me give you one other thing. This was a blessed church. The church at Ephesus was a tremendously blessed church. If you go to chapter 18, you don't have to, but 18, verses 18 and 19, we find out that it was founded by Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was there just momentarily, just a short time. And then chapter 18, verse 24 and 26, uh, Apollos joined the teaching rank. 
Paul comes back to Ephesus on his, that was the second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he comes back to Ephesus and spends three years teaching the church at Ephesus. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul for three years teaching you? That, that is unprecedented. There's no other place in Scripture he spent that much time. You see that in Acts 20, verse 31. Again, then Paul ends up in prison, and he writes the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. That's around 60 AD. So the church had been planted. Paul and Priscilla had been there. Apollos had been there. Paul had spoke there for three years. He ends up in prison. He writes a, a prison epistle to the church that we have, the, you know, the letter to the Ephesians. And then during this time, uh, there was a young man named Timothy. And Paul places Timothy at Ephesus. In fact, in chapter 1, of verse 3 of 1 Timothy, he says, remain at Ephesus. And we believe that, he, that Timothy was then at Ephesus for about a year and a half. So now we have all these great teachers. <laughs> and now Paul had been teaching for three years, and Timothy probably for about a year and a half. And then again, tradition says that the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life at Ephesus, maybe up to two decades. So now you have the beloved, <laughs> the one that walked with Jesus in this church, teaching, teaching, shepherding, caring for. I mean, could you ask for more? <laughs> you know, and so when he writes, when John writes 2 John and 3 John, and he says the elder, he refers to himself as the elder, he's probably referring to himself the elder at the church at Ephesus. Just a, a tremendously well-taught, blessed church. They've been around for about, again, 40 years. They're the hub church. I mean, it's just amazing. In fact, the, you, can, you can see the miracle in chapter 19. Just let me give you one glimpse. When the... When the uh, when it first came, when they, when they first proclaimed the truth, if I can find it, there was even a riot that happens. Because again, they challenged that great uh, idolatry, that great idol, um, Diana. And they had a riot that went on. And you see the riot in verses 21, actually to verse 41. And during that time... Just before that, look at, look, look at how powerful the word had gone out. Chapter uh, 19, verse 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it, would, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I mean, 50,000. That's 50,000 days wage. A piece of silver for each day. I mean, just a huge amount. The point is this. The word hit the heart, and people were ready to sacrifice for Christ. And they were just burning their books, anything of the idolatrous nature. And it just, it just kept rolling on and on. I mean, it was just a tremendous uh, uh, awakening in that church. They became, again, the hub church. And from there, the other six churches were planted and just tremendously blessed. So that's the, that's the commission. Then we come to the city. Because it says to the church of Ephesus or in Ephesus. What was Ephesus actually like? Again, politically, it was a free city. Not many of them were, but Ephesus was. It was a port city. Again, it was where the ships came in from the Mediterranean up the Aegean and were able to, um, it was a, a main part of uh, a commerce. There was no Roman troops there stationed. In fact, the governor even though that wasn't the capital of that province, the governor lived there. I mean, that was, that's how key Ephesus was. So again, they had a lot of advantages from a secular point of view. Economically, again, located on the Castor River, about three miles from where it flowed into the Aegean. It had a deep water port that even at that time was being silted in. They kept having to deal with that and ultimately became silted. And like I said, now it's like about six miles inland. She served as a convergence of land traffic. Um, you don't have that map, do you? The, the point is, is there was, uh, yeah, right here. I mean, obviously from the west came the, the, for the port. And then there was a major road here and a major road there and a major road that came here. So that everything converged at Ephesus. It's what New York City used to be, right? Eh, maybe still is. But the point is, is just that's where everything was. It was ranked 
as one of the three greatest of the cities. The other one was Antioch of Pisidia and Alexandria, Egypt. So, I mean, again, huge, major focal point. Religiously, this is where we get into problems as far as why they hated Christianity. Religiously, it was the, it was the center of worship for uh, the idol uh, Diana, Artemis. Artemis, is that how we say Artemis? A-R-T-E-M-I-S. Now, again, Artemis, she was probably the most worshipped deity in Asia, perhaps the world at Paul's time. I mean, and, and the very center of that worship was in Ephesus. Did you have a picture of her? They only found two. Oh, that's, wow. By the way, these are breasts. I only say that because the, that was a sign of fertility. It was also a sign of immorality. See, the temple was huge. Hundreds and hundreds. Let me see here. Uh, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 120 columns that went 60 feet in the air. Just this huge monstrosity. What am I doing with this? Um, it was considered as one of the seven wonders of the world. So again, she was portrayed as a many-breasted female because, again, that was a symbol of her fertility. They went and worshipped because they wanted to have children and they wanted to have wealth and they wanted to have all the good things of this world and they felt like she could give it to them. Unfortunately, in that city... Oh, by the way, in the banking system, one of the major banks of that entire area was right in the temple. They felt that was the safest spot. So commerce actually went through the temple. It was a cult. And it was very, very ungodly. Hundreds of eunuch priests, virgin priestesses, and religious prostitutes served her. It was very erotic. Business people would make it a point to go through Ephesus just for their escapades and orgies. So again, it was very, very ungodly. Very wicked. Very wicked. In fact, one contemporary wrote this. Speaking of her moral climate, a contemporary said, no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at the immorality. Although you go to some American cities, I guess you should be able to weep the same, right? And then geographically, there was about between a quarter and a half million people. About 150 right in Ephesus, but then you have the outlying areas. And Christ... Put a lampstand right in the middle of that ungodliness. In fact, that's why, look at what he says. Verse 1, the last part. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He refers to them as a lampstand, all the churches. But look at what he says in verse 5. And if you don't do this, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. And I believe that's what a church is, right? A church is a lampstand for a dark world. We are a light that says this is the way. And, it, and by the way, if we lose that, if we lose that, Christ says there's no reason for you then. Well, I shouldn't say no reason. There are other reasons. But one of the main ones is that we would be a light. And, and I, I confess this to you. At times, I haven't, even in my own personal witness, been the light. This is what's really been, this, these passages have been really working my soul. I mean, it works my soul to say, all right, he holds me in his hands and he knows what I am. And he looks at all of us with eyes of flame of fire. We can't get around what we really are before the Lord. And he wants us to be a lampstand. And, and so look at the Christ, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst. Again, what are stars? The stars are the angels, but what, are, what do stars do? Stars give off light. The lampstands give off light. Matthew 5 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Are you giving off your light? Are you a light bearer? Are you, are you giving off the light? of? Because it says in uh, John 1 that Jesus came, he was the life, and he was the light. And when we, when we receive him, we are now children of light, right? By the way, we don't produce our light. We're just reflectors of the light. Like a mirror, you know? On a bright day, you know? You, by the way, do you ever, have you ever tried to uh, uh, look down at a dark chimney? Charlie Emerson told me this. This is how you do it. 
you don't shine even a flashlight. The best way to do it is on a clear day. Maybe you could probably verify this. You take a mirror, right? Why? Because there's nothing so powerful as uh, the sun on a bright sunny day and you just reflect the sun down the chimney and you can see the whole thing. Boy, isn't that a picture of us? You know, a dark, dirty, ungodly place God has probably put all of us, right? And we need to be his light. We need to shine the light of Christ. Now, final two points. Commendation. I know. Boy, final two points in this quarter off. I know. By the way, the word know is idol. I say that because it's referring to full and complete knowledge. There's another word in Greek called gnosko, but that means that it's knowledge that is being acquired. This word is, I know. I have full and complete knowledge. This is what Jesus says, I know. And in each one of these seven letters, he says to the church, I know. I know where you are. I know what you think. I know your motivation. I'm watching your actions. I'm watching your speech. I know. I'm not learning. I know. And now the one who has is chapter 1, verse 14 says, eyes like a flame of fire. He says these four things about this church. He commends them. He, it's positive for their persevering service. I know your labor. By the way, the labor there is labor to the point of exhaustion. It's the point where you're sweating. I know your labor and your perseverance. So the first thing he's doing is, I, I can see your persevering service. The church at Ephesus was a serving church. They were serving. I mean, everybody was busy. They were, they were serving Christ. By the way, probably out of a good heart. I mean, they're serving to the point of exhaustion, to the point of sweat. And they did it long term with patience. That word patience, by the way, uh, refers more to circumstances. In other words, continuing on even though the circumstances are negative. Now think about the, this little tiny church in the in this mega city where you have the temple of Diana and you have all these ungodly people, you know, worshiping and all the garbage that goes on there. And yet they are persevering on. They are persevering on with all those bad circumstances around them. And then look at this. And I also know your spiritual discernment that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you've tested those who say that they are apostles and are not. And, and not only have they tested them, but they have found them liars. In other words, they had the word so ingrained in their heart that they could actually say, you're wrong, and I'll tell you exactly why you're wrong. That's different than just saying you're wrong. Sometimes parents tell their children you're doing wrong, but they can't back it up scripturally. These guys could back it up scripturally. This is why it's wrong. Found them liars. And then look at the third one. A shared hatred, but this you have. I'm going to just skip down to verse 6. Okay? They had a shared hatred that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Christ saying, I hate what they do. By the way, we really don't know much about them, and we're going to see them in another church and also next week. I will only say one thing about them, and this is what a church father said of them at that time frame. Quote, the Nicolaitans, quote, live lives un of unrestrained indulgence. So, end quote. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans, only to say this. Unrestrained, unrestrained indulgences. Just living for this world, living for pleasure. And Jesus says that this church found them to be liars and hated what hated what they were, and as Christ hated that sin, so did they. And he commends them. Do you hate sin? I find that at times I love sin. Let's be real, right? Our flesh loves pleasure. Our flesh loves just saying that extra word of gossip. Our flesh, you know, loves to envy at times and covet and jealous. And... By the way, do you... You get entertained by sin. Woe to those, Isaiah says, who call evil good and good evil. Do you have a tendency to get entertained by the things that God hates? Are you entertained by sensuality, coarse jesting, 
You get entertained by lies and deception and hidden double meanings that are spoken. You get entertained by, again, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. You get entertained by immorality. You ever watch a movie and you're hoping that the guy and the girl get together at the end? They're not even married. But it's almost like you push, like the world just pushes it. Oh, it wouldn't be great. No, it wouldn't be. That's immorality. That's fornication. That's adultery. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I, I told the men's group yesterday. At my, uh, on my trip, I was able to watch uh, American Sniper. And my kids were there. The reason I say that is if you, if you watch the movie, I'd tell you don't. It's a patriotic movie, but it has a tremendous amount of swearing. Tremendous. And it just violated my conscience over and over again. I didn't have the guts to stand up and say, you know, we're not going to watch it. <clears throat> Afterwards, thankfully, I, I was in the van on the way down because that was point A and then we we're going to point B. And I... And I told the kids, I said, you know, what you witnessed was not correct. It's not right to be in... By the way, the storyline in the man's life, I'm not going to take anything away from that. I'm not, I believe he was a patriot from American point of view. And we need patriots. You know, I'm not, but again, you've got to be... Are you entertained by the world? I, I think we've, we are... The sewage hits us so much, we forget that God hates it. This church had a high standard. And, verse 3, they had staying power. And you have persevered. By the way, he uses the same exact words. All three of these words he used in verses 2 and, two, two and 3. You have persevered, you have patience, and you have labored. It's almost like he just... And you haven't become weary in it. There's one thing to persevere and like totally dead tog weary. And, but these people, they had their eyes on Jesus and they were just moving forward. And yet, look at what it says. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And that's in the emphatic. Your first, first in rank, love you have left. That's literally how it plays on the Greek. Your first love you have left. Your first, your priority love. Your love for me you have left. I always have found this, this church so fascinating. I mean, if... If we had those first four, we'd say, Amen, brother. We are walking with Jesus. And yet Jesus himself looks at them and says, You have left your first agape. You no longer have the love for me that you once had. And I know I'm completely out of time, but let me throw this in. How do you know, that you, how do you know when you've lost your first love? Let me answer it three ways. You've left your first love towards Christ when your love for Christ is not primary. What is it? What's the greatest of all commands? Love the Lord your God with all your... Wait, wait. Love the Lord your God with all. Your heart and with all. Your mind with all. Your soul with all your strength. The question he kept asking me this week... Do you love me with everything, John? Or am I just convenient in your life? No. Christ has to be primary. Absolutely primary. In fact, that's why in Matthew 10 he says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what I really fear with second generation Christians. Because without sometimes having to suffer, the question is, do you really love him above all else? And if your mom and dad went this direction, would you follow them if it was against Christ? All. You've got to love him with all your heart. Number two, you have left your first love towards Christ when your love for other believers is not sacrificial. 1 John 3.16. This is John speaking. This is the apostle. This is the one that's writing Revelation. 1 John 3.16. By this we know, because he laid down his life for us, and, as we, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has this world's good... See, what did he just say? He loved us. And now we need to lay down our lives for God. No, he didn't say that. We need to lay down our lives, what? For the brethren. If you say you love me, then show your love by how you treat my family. That's what God would say. Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us love uh, let us not love in word or in tongue only, but in deed and in truth. It's not just primary love on God, uh, on Christ. We lose our first love for Christ when, we, when our love for the other believers is not sacrificial. Is your love for others sacrificial? I mean, what, if, what, if I, what if you had to write a paper right now? Please... Write down how you are sacrificing for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How would you answer that? I'm using my giftedness. I'm using my uh, abilities. I'm using... How are you doing it? Because see, this is what I found myself saying. Lord, I love you. I tell you what, I came to the end of this message and I said, I have left my first love. That's how I determined my life. No, I have left my first love. I'm not saying I'm... Right now, I am walking my first love. But it just opened my eyes like, you know what? Wait a second here. See, we can deceive ourselves pretty easy, right? The flesh keeps saying this. Come on, get over it. Let me give you a third final. You have left your first love towards Christ when the gospel to the damned is not spoken. In fact, I believe that that is the primary way that you first of all see that you've left your first love. Remember Jesus said, make disciples of all nations? Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Isn't it interesting that this is how he says he's going to judge this church if they don't come back to their first love? Verse 5, and I will remove your lampstand. I could give you a long quote, but basically this is what the guy said. Some people see, this is what a commentator said. Some people see the first lost love and how you don't love Jesus with 100% love. Others see it because you don't sacrifice or however he puts it for other Christians. But he says, I believe, and I believe, I believe this. Let's forget the commentator. I believe this. You, what does it say? What is the greatest of the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and he doesn't say Christian. He doesn't say brother. By the way, I do believe that you are to love God with all your heart. And I do believe that you are to sacrifice for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I believe that the final that really shows that you have love for Christ primarily is that you are willing to be a lampstand to a dark world. It kind of works backwards. See, we can say the one and we can do the other, but that still makes it comfortable. It's not until you go out to the ungodly Ephesians and says, by the way, what you're doing over in the temple, that's ungodly, and God will judge. But I'll tell you, I'll show you the way. Right? That's where it gets hard, right? That's the point. It really gets hard. So you can say the one, you can do the other, but it's when you start sharing the truth, and yet we're called to be lampstands, right? Amen? Are we called to be lampstands? I, I, do you have, like, on your list, your daily prayer list? You do have a daily prayer list, right? And you're praying for certain people that God opened the door I want to share? Or have you gotten tired? Oh, I did that before. I shared, they rejected me. Oh, they might get offended. That's immaterial. You are lamps. We're a lampstand. And if you say, yes, I love Christ with, with top priority, are you willing to be offensive in this world? Offensive in the sense that they will look at you and say, you totally offend me by telling me that my religion is going to damn me. Yeah, I'm willing to do that if my eyes are on Christ, right? So my question is, are you a true witness? Well, you are a witness. I guess I'll ask a better question. Are you a godly first love type witness? Because we're all witnesses. You're all saying something. But are you truly walking with Jesus? And because you love him so much, it just bleeds out. And people are around and you just want to share Christ. And isn't that what often happens in the first generation Christian? Do you remember when you first got saved? You know, you just need Jesus. In fact, sometimes we didn't even know all that we were saying. We didn't have all the pieces together. 
We were even saying things that sometimes are wrong, but all we know is this, you need Jesus. And then it goes along, and sometimes we get dull to that. And then the baton is being passed to our children and grandchildren, and sometimes they miss that altogether. In fact, sometimes Christianity becomes nothing more than an inward. We're comfortable, we take care of ourselves, we love each other, and we should do all those. But somehow we forget that there is a dying world that is going to hell, the wrath of God is upon them, and we need to get out to them. They're not going to come into us. And I believe they lost their first love because they were no longer witnessing of the love of Christ to the unsaved world. Are you? I trust you are. Because it's a main mark. It's one of the main marks. I know love of brethren, but one of the main marks of the first love towards Christ. Let's stand as we finish.